This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Ingress, number one in its field. Auctioneer Peter Hegney had knocked down 96 weanlings by the time he got to lot 476 at the Monday session of Inglis's Great Southern Sale on June the 17th. Peter will never forget that lot 476 was a chestnut cult by extreme choice out of unrevealed offered by Newgate Stud. When a bid of 65000 from Paul Willett's Bloodstock New Zealand proved to be the winning bid, Peter dropped the gavel and said what he'd said a million times in 43 years. He's all done. But then he added three more words, or four more words, and so am I, which triggered spontaneous applause from vendors, buyers, colleagues and spectators. It had been well documented that Lot 476 would mark the retirement of one of Australia's most respected bloodstock auctioneers, a man who made a million friends over five decades in the auctioneering business, the last 25 years with the iconic Inglis Company. Peter has been kind enough to join us on the podcast to share with us some of the memories of his life around horses. Peter, thanks for your time and congratulations on a magnificent career. Thank you, John. Very kind of you to have me talk to you. It's been a long and happy journey and there must have been some emotion bubbling under the surface when you knocked down that weanling the other day. Oh, yes, there was, John, no question about that. It's, as you say, it's been a very, very long journey, but one that I've enjoyed immensely. Um, fortunately, I've had time to transition into my retirement. I've scaled back over the last three years, actually. I handed over the management of the Victorian operation to Simon Vivian, and I cut back to working a few days a week. And in fact, in the last 12 months, I had only really been doing the auction. So it was a little easier to uh, sell that final horse. Yes, there was some emotion there. Of course, there was. I was determined to, to keep the lid on it, I might add. Yeah. It was only just as I knocked it down when it suddenly all hit me. Mm. But uh, anyway, we got through and all was well. Weanling sales are a fairly recent phenomenon. When you started with Inglis in 1994, they were virtually unknown, but they've emerged in a very big way in recent years. And obviously, they're here to stay. Yes, John, that's exactly right. Um, I guess the weanlings that were sold back in those early years were probably cull weanlings that people just plainly didn't want or had some conformational issues, uh, weren't strong enough on pedigree, whatever reason, mm. and they were basically coals. whereas these days people actually sell their their good weanlings. Uh, as an example, a stud like Bernawang of Cathy Haynes' here the last few years has been selling all the whole draft of foals as weanlings as opposed to taking them through to the yearling sales. So, yes, it's a changing trend. You're absolutely right. And uh, as we've seen now, I mean, weanlings can make very, very good money. There was a time when they made little money because they were the coals of the draft, mm. whereas now some top-class weanlings can be sold because people are actually looking for weanlings to pinhook to take through to the yearling sales. As a result, there's some very good weanlings going through the sales. Yeah. It's not hard to imagine the reasons for people wanting to sell weanlings. There must be a huge cost save uh, to the breeders and it, 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 it also reduces, greatly reduces the, the chance of accidents and injuries. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Yes, very both of those, all of those things, John. Really, yes, it does save the cost, of course, uh, the keeping the horse right through till the January, February, March, whenever a, a yearling would normally be sold, and uh, obviously it reduces the risk factor as well. Look, for some people, it suits. They may not have the facilities, they may not have the resources, the staff to take um, weanlings through to yearling sales. Um, but yes, economically, it it certainly suits. At the same time, of course, it also gives a lot of those pin hookers out there the opportunity to to buy yield a weanling that they can see a future in. Um, they can see it growing, developing into a good sort of yearling. Mm. And uh, so the competition out there is pretty hot for those better class weanlings. You had the honour of selling the incomparable black caviar at the English Premier Sale in Melbourne in 2008. She went to Peter Moody for 210000 What a conversation piece you've got there for dinner parties. <laughs> I guess so, John. You're quite right. Of course, little did I know when I told her that she was going to develop into a black caviar. She was obviously a nice filly. She sold above expectations. She was by a stallion who, while promising, was one she wouldn't really say was highly commercial mm. at the time. Uh, and so uh, at 210000 she actually sold really well. And since then, her family has developed even further. It was always basically a good pedigree, but it's developed even further. Um, and, uh, yeah, she went on to do what she did do. Um, I guess the unique thing or interesting thing aspect of it was that I think I said at the time something I'd never said before and <laughs> never said never said since mm. when I said just think what she's going to be worth when she wins a group 1 race. Mm. Uh, little did I little did I know John. Mm. You also did the honors when Black Caviar's half brother by Reduce Choice was sold at the 2012 English Easter Sale. The opening bid you must have almost fallen off the rostrum. The opening bid was $1.5 million. John, it was always mooted, of course, that he was going to make a lot of money. He was a lovely, lovely individual with a great temperament. Um, just how much money he was going to make, nobody, of course, really knew. The expectations were high. The publicity around him, the hype around him was very high. He'd been one of the most filmed and photographed horses ever, I would say, at a, at a yearling sale. But it was pretty exciting when the whole thing occurred. I might add, John, look, it was just the luck of the draw that I happened to sell him. In fact, I recall only too well that I pleaded with Jonathan Darcy to change the selling run so he could sell him. Jonathan was the manager in Sydney. He was the chief auctioneer up there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really thought that it was timely that Jonathan would sell him. But being the great fellow that Jonathan is, he refused to change the selling runs. He said, we've never done it before. We're not going to do it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just done automatically, and so the horse just happened to fall in my selling run. But yes, reflecting on it, it was a pretty exciting time to sell uh, the highest price yearling ever sold in this part of the world. You were also the auctioneer when a broodmare called Milanova made $5 million at um, a breeding stock sale in 2008 to real stud. Uh, had a large reduction sale, and this mare was knocked down to Coolmore in foal to Encosta de Lago. 
Yes, well, a bit the same th thing there, really. Um, it uh, was well recognised that she was going to make a lot of money with her pedigree and credentials, one of the best pedigreed mares in the world. But again, no mare had ever been sold for $5 million in Australia and hasn't since. So, uh, again, an exciting time, but typically it just happened that she was in my selling run. Um, but, yes, there was great anticipation about the sale of her and, uh, again, a bit like the Black Caviar half-brother, she certainly made more than we had expected. And a huge increase on the previous broodmare record of $3.4 million, which uh, was paid for Virage de Fortune. Was it the year before, Pete? It wasn't too long before. Gee, you've done your homework, John, haven't you? Yes, I think that's absolutely correct. <laughs> yes, it is. Now, a big increase on that. Um, but uh, again, as I said, one of the best credentialed mayors in the world, I guess. And in fact, uh, she then went to the Northern Hemisphere uh, to breed over there after she was purchased in Australia. Mm. Every now and again, you take a, a strong personal liking to a yearling. Obviously, you've inspected him at the stud months before. You see them again when they arrive at the English complex and you like him or you don't like him. But there was one <laughs> you loved, a grey cult. He was by in Costa de Lago. He was sold way back in 2004. You thought he'd make a heck of a lot more than he did. Remember the horse? <laughs> yes, I do. There was the horse was racing to win, I assume you're referring yeah, to. Yeah, John. racing to win. Yeah, he turned out to be a pretty good horse. Oh, yes, you're right. Look, um, John, I haven't raced many champions as an owner, despite the fact I've had quite a lot of horses over a lot of years. But uh, he was a horse, yes, that I did like a lot. And I was devastated when I think he only made 40000 if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, and I remember working really, really hard to try and lift his value because I honestly thought he was worth a lot more money. Mm. Um, yes, it was 15 years ago, so yeah. there have been a few horses passed through the sale ring since then, but he was one in particular that does stick in my, in my mind because I did like the horse so much. Yeah. Just to refresh your memory and the memory of people listening to us, he had 30 starts. He won 13 of them. He won five group ones, five group twos, and was a tremendous little horse. His prize money tally finished up at $3.7 million. Um, yes, no, he was a very good horse. You're right. So I was very pleased on that occasion, at least, that then uh, my judgment was justified, I guess, John. Your dad was the great Adelaide horse trainer, Graham Hegney. You grew up a stone's throw from Morfittville Racecourse with stables in your backyard. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, when I was born, Dad was still a jockey, but of course I don't remember those years. And uh, not long after I was born, uh, he took out the trainer's license. So as a result, we pretty much always had horses in our backyard, uh, as you said. Um, and yeah, it was uh, it was a great journey. I mean, it certainly helped me um, with my horsemanship skills, I guess, if you like, having horses around all the time. And uh, it was only, in fact, when I uh, you know, really moved away from home when Dad retired that uh, we didn't have uh, racehorses around us. But yes, every day. Just to illustrate how much in demand Graham Hegney was as a trainer in Adelaide, there was a time there when he opened satellite stables in Perth and in Melbourne. 
Yes, I think he, well, in fact, I know that he was the first Eastern State trainer to open the stables in Perth. He was one of the first trainers to take horses to Perth to the racing carnival over there. As you'd recall, um, that uh, Christmas summer carnival over there became very big and there was very good prize money on offer. And uh, after the persistent soliciting from the Western Australian Turf Club, Dad eventually gave in and conceded to take some horses over there. I think perhaps the first time he took three of them over there. Uh, I think if I remember rightly, Sir Golio was one on side, another one. Mm. I think there was a third as well. They performed very creditably over there at the time. Mm. But, uh, yes, he was at one stage. And then he bought a stables, as you say. So at one stage, yes, had stables in three states, which going back in those days was, was pretty unusual. Um, mm. Some trainers had stables in two states, although most trainers, of course, didn't. If they took horses interstate, they just uh, either rented or used friends' stables. But, yeah, Dad owned three stables in three states for, mm. for a period of time. He trained a Melbourne Cup winner in 1963, the horse uh, with the unusual name Gatum Gatum. The first of Jimmy Johnson's three Melbourne Cup winners. He pulled hard in that cup, Peter. In fact, Jimmy told me once in an interview that he'd never ridden a horse to pull as hard and still win. Yeah, it was a tough old customer, Gatham Gatham. I mean, he won at long odds, uh, as you'd well recall. But having said that, his form was pretty good, really. He'd won a South Australian derby before Dad trained him, I might add. Dad took him on after that. He uh, won a South Australian derby. He'd run third in the Caulfield Cup. And in those days, the Caulfield Cup was a good lead-in race uh, to the Melbourne Cup. People used to look for place-getters or great runs out of the Caulfield Cup uh, as potential Melbourne Cup winners. So despite his long price, he did have some pretty useful form coming into the Cup. But again, um, all Dad knew uh, was that he was as fit as he possibly could. In fact, I remember Dad saying that. He said, he's as fit as I can possibly get him. I don't know whether he's good enough or not. Yeah. turned out that he was. He was. Your father trained a brilliant two-year-old filly called Proud Miss. She won ten straight as a two-year-old, a couple of them against older horses. Then she ran second, the birthday card in the 1962 Golden Slipper. Do you have clear memories of Proud Miss? Absolutely, I do, John. Yes, very much so. I mean, I was I was still at school, as a matter of fact, I think, when uh, she was racing. But, uh, yes, I have very clear uh, picture and images of her. She was a wonderful filly. Um, she wasn't a big filly, but she was a very strong filly. She had a great hindquarter on her, and uh, she was brilliant. I often laugh, as a matter of fact, to think that she won 10 races as a two-year-old. I mean, that just wouldn't be done these days, I guess, but it was much more commonplace in those days. I think our horses used to race uh, more frequently. Uh, it wasn't unusual to back horses up. Certainly in Dad's case, he was a pretty tough trainer, and but his horses were always very fit. Um, but for her to win 10 races as a two-year-old was was Pretty unusual, and I guess probably wouldn't be done these days, John. You have indelible memories of your dad's champion, Tobin Bronze, the handsome, aristocratic, coppery chestnut son of Arctic Explorer. In Australia, 44 starts, 24 wins and 11 placings. He won a derby as a three-year-old. As a four-year-old, he won 11 races including a Cox Plate and a Doncaster, and as a five-year-old he won a two-rack, another Cox Plate and a Caulfield Cup 
with 61.5. What a great horse he was. Well, I think you've summed him up perfectly. He was a wonderful individual, apart from his obvious race record. He was a super racehorse, no question about that. The sort of horse that could um, win a 1,200-metre race and obviously win a 2,400-metre race as well. I know he ran in the Melbourne Cup, but uh, having said that, I also know that Dad knew that he actually wasn't a a genuine two-miler. But he was a super racehorse, but also a very good-looking horse, as you said, an aristocratic horse. He was a great colour. He was a coppery chestnut. Uh, And I think that was one of the things that endeared him to the racing public. Uh, the great uh, race caller Bill Collins said the reception he got after to winning his last race, I think, uh, was the mm. greatest reception he's ever heard on a race course for a horse. And I think Tobin Bronze's good look certainly endeared him to the public. And that, combined with his race record, is uh, what made him, I think, such a popular horse here. Mm. Well, he played a part in my early career too, Peter, because he was the reason... I was uh, flown to the United States by radio station 2GB to call his Washington International, his first American start. He arrived after a nightmare trip, uh, dehydrated. He'd lightened off considerably. Uh, He was out on his feet when he arrived in Washington. And I remember Jimmy Johnson saying they needed another week, really, to get him back on his feet. He still ran third to two great American horses, Fort Marcy and Damascus, and if memory serves me rightly, he got poleaxed in the middle stages of the race. Yeah, John, all of that's correct from my recollection. Um, I know Dad was not at all happy. In those days, of course, air transportation for horses was nothing like it is these days. It was very basic. It was very long. Uh, it took much longer than it would today. And uh, he had a an horrendous trip over there. You're perfectly right. In fact, I remember Dad saying that the horse was so tired and so fed up with it. It's the first time he'd ever seen the horse kick at anything. Really? He had a great temperament, um, mm. but he just had enough of it on the way over. So for him to recover as he did under the circumstances and run third in the Washington International, which in those days was really one of the the feature races of the world, John, wasn't it? Oh, um, yeah. yeah. There are other now, of course, that have taken over that mantle, but in those days, it was the big one, the big races of the world. Probably a bit like Peter Moody with Black Caviar, really. Um, you know, Pete, uh, in hindsight, says that uh, she was very, very l- lucky to get to the post. Things hadn't go- gone right with her, mm. uh, but she managed to win. It was a bit like that with Tobin Bronze and Dad. Uh, under normal circumstances, had it been a normal race, I guess he wouldn't have run, but he'd gone there for that purpose and he was somewhat obliged to run mm. and he ran a very, very creditable race, but perhaps not up to the level that uh, we'd seen him back here in Australia. Peter Hegney, I'll just get you to stand by there while we clear a commitment on the podcast back after this. The completion of the Great Southern Sail in Melbourne brought down the curtain on a spectacular sail season for Inglis. In 2019, Inglis cleared an amazing 85% of all yearlings offered a Southern Hemisphere high. Inglis sold 19 of the 30 yearlings in Australia to make more than a million dollars, as well as the only two yearlings to sell for two million or more. Inglis graduates have won 20 individual Group 1 races for the season so far. 
English ended the sales season as the Southern Hemisphere market leader. Entries for the classic Melbourne Premier, Australian Easter, Melbourne Gold and Scone Yearling sales will be open in early July. You'll find details and entry forms at english.com.au. Just to sum up on Tobin Bronze's American career, he finished up winning four races over there before his new owner, William Rosenberg, sent him to the stud and he was moderately successful. He sired a few handy ones. John, he did. He, uh, yes, he, look, he was very useful over there as a stallion, but in those days, of course, Australian form really wasn't recognised. And because he didn't perform to the level in America that he had in Australia, I don't think the, the American public or the American broodmare owners actually adopted him uh, as perhaps they should have. Again, in hindsight, had he stood back here in Australia, I think he would have been incredibly popular and, and had a great opportunity. But um, he didn't really get the quality of mares that he yeah. deserved over there. And as a consequence, he did it a little tough. He did a very useful job at stud. Yes, he did. But uh, I think perhaps given better opportunity, he probably could have done even more. At this stage of your life, you had a different kind of involvement with horses. You were a pretty good hand in the show ring and a regular, I'm told, at the Adelaide Royal in several different pursuits. <laughs> yes, John, I did. Look, I had an equestrian background in the early days. I was not so involved in the racing side, despite the fact that, uh, as I said, we always had horses, uh, race horses in there, virtually in our backyard. But yes, I was a bit more interested in the equestrian side of things. Uh, had a dabble at everything, excelled at none, um, but did try everything. I did represent Australia in a uh, in a team in New Zealand uh, as a junior in an eventing team, but that was a very, very long time ago. But I loved it. I enjoyed those days very much indeed. I still do. Uh, not the compete, of course, haven't for a very long time. But, uh, yeah, I love it. And, in fact, now in retirement, I perhaps will get back a little more into it on the administrative side of it and perhaps commentating side um, than I had been able to in recent years when I just didn't have the time to, de to devote to it. Mm. But, um, yeah, I did, uh, I did enjoy it in those early years when I was much younger. One of your father's clients was a very high-profile person called Philippe Ishmael. He was an owner, he was a breeder, and boy, did he love a bet. He owned the 1968 Victoria Derby winner, Always There, who later went to the USA, accompanied by young Peter Hegney, and you were away for quite a while. Yeah, it was an interesting time, that, John. Dad didn't train always there, of course. Charlie Whittingham trained the horse. Dad did have quite a big team of horses for Philippe Ismail. As you mentioned, it was interesting that uh, Ismail was such a big better because Dad was not a punter at all. $10 or $5 might have been five pounds in those days, each way punter. Um, but Ismail was a very, very big punter, of course. So I had the opportunity to take Always There to America. Uh, I jumped at that at the time. I was working for the stock and station agency, Dalgettys. They gave me leave of absence for six months, and uh, I took the horse over there. We were based in Florida at the Delray Training Centre. Mm. Unfortunately, due to a, a few ownership problems at the time, uh, the horse didn't race while I was there. Uh, I think he subsequently raced after but uh, I enjoyed that time. It gave me a great opportunity to have a look at different training methods at stud farms. After I left always there, 
I then went to Kentucky, um, I spent quite a bit of time at studs there. I saw racing in New York and in California. So it opened up another world to me. And uh, that in itself was one of the reasons that when I came home from that trip, I actually uh, went, didn't go back to Dalgetty's. I, in fact, stayed home and, and continued to work with my father. And you did that for seven years, Pete. So if you were going to become a trainer yourself, that's when it would have happened. Uh, yes, it would have. And in fairness, I guess I had a great opportunity there. I, I suppose I had the world at my feet because Dad was had been a, obviously a very successful trainer. He had a big team of horses and a very good clientele. And I suppose I had the opportunity to take over. Dad's health had declined a bit at that stage, and so he was contemplating retiring. Um, he hadn't done so immediately. I remember driving home from the races with him one day, actually, mm. and we had two runners in the one race, and one won and one ran an ordinary race. Mm. And all Dad was worried about on the way home was the one that ran the ordinary race. Mm. And I said at the time, gee, Dad, if you're not going to get sort of enjoyment and pleasure out of a winner, then I'm not too sure whether he should be going on. At the time, he half scoffed at it, but sometime later, he told me that that actually resonated with him and uh, he thought about that and thought maybe that was right. Mm. Anyway, I eventually did give it away, of course, and uh, I had the opportunity to take over the team, or maybe most of them anyway. But I had seen my father work virtually you know, every day of his working life, mm. and he was a really hard-working, hands-on trainer as opposed to today where there's so much more delegation and so many four people. Um, he wasn't necessarily that sort of trainer, although in the end he had a very good four person in Mick Robins, who, as you would recall, took over the training of the team and, mm. and took over the training of Rain Lover, who then went on to win two Melbourne Cups. Mm. But I wasn't quite convinced I was that dedicated to the whole sport. I loved the feat of training a horse, um, getting a horse fit and winning a race with him. I loved that. But everything else that went with it in the long hours and the long days, I wasn't sure that I was quite committed enough. So uh, I decided to go down a different path. Well, the different path was Cole's Bloodstock in Adelaide. You started work for them. You'd barely settled in when you got a transfer to Perth. Yes. Well, there weren't really any opportunities available in Adelaide at the time. So, uh, I, yes, uh, there wasn't a, an opportunity in Perth. I decided to take it, um, and I loved my time there, although it was only six months. Uh, and then I was transferred to Melbourne, where Coles Bloodstock uh, had a business here in opposition, in fact, to the established sales company of Wright Stevenson's. And uh, so, yeah, I moved over to Perth, and uh, at the time, I was about to get married. Uh, got married, came straight to Melbourne, and I've been here ever since, John. A man called David Coles played a most significant part in your life and your career, a man for whom you had the utmost respect. Yes, unquestionably. A great mentor to me, a fine man, uh, the best uh, thoroughbred auctioneer I've ever heard. Uh, he was revered. He was respected. Uh, he held many positions of authority. He was chairman of the South Australian Jockey Club for some time. 
Um, he, for a short time, was chairman of the Gawler three-day event at the time, one of the best three-day events in the world. But he had m- held many positions, and he was just a great man. He was a great mentor to me, as he was to so many people in our industry, in fact. Um, uh, John Foote, Adrian Hancock, Simon Vivian. It's a massive list of people to whom David Coles was mentor, and, and he certainly was to me. You were working for Dalgettys in Melbourne when that company was bought out by Inglis, which was then called William Inglis & Son in 1994. Now, not only were you invited to manage the Melbourne operation, but you were appointed a director of the Inglis Board, two very big developments in your career, and it was Reg Inglis, who was the then managing director of the Inglis Company, who made those offers to you. Yeah, John, that's right. Uh, when English bought Dalgetty in 94, as you said, quite frankly, I wasn't even sure whether I had a job. I was working for Dalgetty's at the time, Dalgetty Bloodstock, who I might add had taken over the ownership of Coles Bloodstock here in Melbourne. But uh, yes, I wasn't even sure whether I was going to have a continuing job. But fortunately, Reg Inglis had enough faith in me to uh, appoint me as Victorian manager and in due course, although not immediately, onto the Inglis board. And uh, I was really chuffed about that and uh, very thankful for the opportunity that Reg gave me in those years. You were paid a huge compliment in 2008 when invited to act as a guest auctioneer at the famous Tattersall sale in England, the first time this honour had been accorded to an Australian auctioneer. Yeah, I think it was the first time for a non, non-European auctioneer. John, that was one of the best times of my working life. Uh, to sell for Tattersalls was just a wonderful experience. Now, I readily concede that I'm not sure that my selling style necessarily went down particularly well, quite frankly, with the with the English bloodstock community. Um, it is quite a bit different, as you'd appreciate, from how we sell here in Australia. But uh, just the experience of it being involved in a company with the history that Tattersalls had, English had a long enough history as we well know, but Tattersalls, of course, even longer. And it's such just a wonderful operation, the, 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 just the atmosphere, just being part of that really, really meant a lot. Look, I'm a, I'm a bit of a sentimentalist and a traditionalist for sure, so to be involved in that company with a t- tradition that they had was, as I say, one of the best experiences of my working life. You didn't get to know John Inglis well until Inglis took over the Dalgetty operation in 1994. John died in 2006 at age 88. And in those in-between years, you got to work with the man everybody called the boss. The boss, absolutely. (laughs) No, as you say, I didn't work with him, uh, perhaps, uh, should I say, in his heyday, but nevertheless, I knew him, of course, and uh, he was certainly a a wonderful, wonderful man, Uh, Mr. Inglis, or the boss, as he was known, Um, a a, a fine gentleman, a bit like from the David Coles era, quite frankly. Mm. Um, uh, There were three senior men for whom I had the greatest respect who ran the bloodstock companies, David Coles, uh, Bill Stutt, here in Melbourne, who managed Wright Stevenson's, and uh, John Inglis in Sydney. And they were wonderful gentlemen. They were really fine men. And John Inglis was was obviously one of those and a man for whom I had great respect. And when I did uh, join the company, 
Um, he had backed off a little, although, in fact, he was still chairman of the board at the time, but a, a very, very fine man indeed. You have two sons, Peter, Sam and Will. Have they inherited the Hegney genes when it comes to horses? <laughs> uh, no, surprisingly, maybe, considering uh, uh, the involvement their mother has in the horse world uh, also. Um, look, both boys can ride. Both boys boys have ridden. Um, I suggested to uh, older son Sam when he was about 12, I guess, and he'd done a little bit of show work and Jim Carner work. And I said to him that um, I thought he might like to have a ride at Melbourne show one day before it, it got serious because I said at this age you don't have to be so serious about it, but after this it does get a bit that way. <laughs> John, to be perfectly blunt, he looked at me and said, Dad, I think I'd rather slash my wrists. So, oh, <laughs> I get the message. <laughs> I get the message. He didn't want to continue riding. No. <laughs> so, uh, that was the end of his. And uh, younger son, well, yes, he rides too. He occasionally goes to uh, smaller shows, but uh, not not highly competitive. But, um, yeah, both boys, boys ride without being seriously involved. Your wife, Helen, like you, is Adelaide-born and has been a very, very good equestrian throughout her life. She performed at a very high level. Uh, yes, John, she did uh, a far, far, far better question than I ever was. Um, Helen has been certainly at the top of the game. She won, I think, one of the most respected and, and successful competitors uh, here, both in dressage and showing in Australia. She still continues to ride most days. She doesn't compete anywhere near at the level that she used to, but occasionally when it suits her, she's got a very handy little horse here which she takes to shows. She loves it. Um, and as you say, yeah, she has. She's uh, she won the the Garion Trophy here at the Melbourne Royal Show on four occasions. Um, only one person's ever won more of those. So uh, yes, yeah, she she has been very successful. Well, Peter, I'm going to keep a close eye on that chestnut cult by Extreme Choice out of Unrevealed down the track. We've got to wait a while yet before we see him out on the uh, on the arena, but hopefully he'll make it and. I think when he sails past the post in front one day, people will remember that he was locked 476 and was knocked down by Peter Hegley. <laughs> Thanks, John. I don't know what they'll remember, but like you, I'll be watching with great interest too. Fortunately, the colt sold particularly well on the day. I was really going into the sale, I might add. I was very concerned. I didn't particularly want to pass in my last loss, as you'd well understand. Mm. So it gave me great satisfaction to ensure that he sold and, in fact, sold over the vendor's reserve. So that was pleasing. Congratulations on a job well done and enjoy a happy and healthy retirement. Thank you, John. Very much appreciated. And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. The recent Great Southern Sale at the beautifully renovated Oaklands Junction Complex was an outstanding success. The select weanlings offered on the first two days averaged over $32,000 with a clearance rate of almost 80%. 22 of them sold for $100,000 or more. The broodmares also enjoyed considerable increases across all key indicators. An average of 25,000 up 27%, a median of 8,000 up 45% and a gross of 5.1 million up 15%. Top of the market was again very strong with nine horses selling for $200,000 or more. 
Across four days of selling, the gross was almost 17.7 million, up 11%. It's time for vendors to switch the attention to the 2020 yearling sales and entries will open in early July. Go to inglis.com.au.